Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 73 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Trevor Dunn. I'm a bass player um, is, I guess, the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I'm a professional musician and uh, I freelance and play in a bunch of different bands. You play in like a lot, a lot, not only a lot of bands, but a lot of bands that cross a lot of genres. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's sort of the um, go-to with me. You know, I'm the guy who does that. So if people want someone who plays both upright and electric or plays both kind of, you know, can, can like, you know, pull off jazz and rock, (laughs) you know, they might call me. I mean, there's a few people who, who do that, but, um, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of freelance musicians tend to be kind of known for a specific thing, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I, I, play with a lot of people like Nels Klein or John Zorn or um, uh, Chris Davis. I don't know, people who kind of uh, jump back and forth between styles. And on the other side, you play with bands like Mr. Bungle <laughs> and Tom Exactly. And- yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Mr. Bungle's a band that I co-founded um, 35 years ago. And, you know, bands like Phantomos and Tomahawk are all sort of... Uh, you know, not offshoots, but part of that same family, you know, it's kind of obvious lineage there, I guess. But, um, yes, uh, someone once oh. said to me, um, we're like brothers and sisters, but more like, bro- we're all family, but it's like brothers and sister-in-laws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the trigger for this conversation was the fact that Mr. Bungle's got a brand new album that just came out the the uh, the gap between the two albums is not insignificant it's multiple <laughs> decades <laughs> right right the yeah. the, the album years, to be precise <laughs> yeah, the album that came out is also takes you back almost to day 1 of this demo album that you recreated um exactly. so I want to I want to talk about your origin story and all that we'll get to that but can you just sort of connect those dots as to that gap of time why if you're coming back redo this infamous demo tape that people who are in the genre, which I was remember <laughs> very uh-huh. well. What was the whole thinking around this? Well, the, the gap was sort of, um, I guess unintentional in a way, you know, we, it was typical for us a- after making a record and touring, you know, we, we did this after our first record, our first Warner brothers record. And after disco Volante, we would always, uh, take quite a bit of time in between records uh, for multiple reasons. One that is that Mike was busy with his side project, Faith No More, and uh, <laughs> and um, and subtle, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm usually more subtle about it than that, but uh, and then um, also, you know, we would. It was always kind of an intense experience, um, you know, being around each other. So we kind of needed a break. Um, and then also we had to kind of rethink what we were going to do for the next batch of music, which we never discussed. We just kind of let it organically come out of us, um, you know, uh, individually. And, um, in this case, after we did the most touring we ever did was on that record, California, we went to, we toured the States, I think like three times, maybe four. We went to Australia, we went to Europe. Um, it was the most touring we'd done as a band and we're not like a, we're not obviously like the typical band that, you know, goes on tour, you know, you know, makes a record, goes on tour, comes back, makes another record, goes on tour again. We just never fell into that, uh, pattern. Fortunately, I'd never, I never, uh, that never appealed to me anyway. Um, and it was actually, it was great because it, because of, uh, Mike's schedule with Faith No More, it, you know, it allowed me and Trey and, and Danny and Bear to kind of pursue other things while we were, you know, in between albums and tours. So 
Um, but in this particular case, after California, that, that kind of happened. And then I think we were just kind of, you know, at that point we'd already, we'd been a band for, uh, gee, I'm not doing the math right now, but I mean, we'd basically been a band since 1985. Right. And California Um, was around 99, 2000, right? Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, I think it came out in 99 and our last tour was 2000. So we've been me and Mike and Trey had been hanging out together since we were, you know, teenagers. And I think we'd probably just had enough of each other. (laughs) And a lot of, you know, a lot of people talk about, Oh, that's when they broke up or something, but we never officially, we never actually broke up. We just start, stopped playing together. (laughs) And, uh, um, so, you know, I moved to New York, Trey moved to the Santa Cruz mountains. The other two bear and Danny moved to Australia. You know, it, it just became, we just the 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 separateness of the you know of the band was more defined and um which had been kind of developing over the years like if you really look at the way we wrote music together it would you know the, the first album was kind of came out of our first demos which was really about us getting together and jamming you know and like train might come over over to my house or or the band the whole band getting together and kind of working out songs together and that kind of it started to dissipate over the years, and then by the time California came around, we were basically sending each other tapes of completed songs, like "Here's my input," you know, "What's your input?" you know. And I mean, in the studio, there was a lot of um, co-production and 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 cooperation going on, but um, you know, it was the writing was getting more and more separate, and then. After California, you know, Mike got busy with his band, some of which I was involved in. Trey was doing a lot more Secret Chiefs 3, you know, it, it just kind of, we sort of, um, the, 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 how can I say, I don't know, I guess the fabric of what held us together started to separate in a natural, in what seemed like a natural way to me. It wasn't, um, it, you know, just, again, it was kind of organic that it happened that way. And then, and then at a certain point after meeting Dave Lombardo and Phantomos, um, I had this idea to re-record our first demo, which was always a demo that was kind of close to me and Trey and Mike's hearts, you know, and we talked about it a lot. We talked about those years. We were full-on metalheads in the 80s, you know, and and that demo just never really got the, um, the proper, uh, it never got its due, really. It wasn't, it wasn't performed that accurately. It wasn't recorded that well. It was, you know, it was on tape, which degenerated over years, you know, almost basically got to the point where it's unlistenable. Um, and the only way you could hear it was, is on, you know, on YouTube essentially. Um, which is how we had to relearn it (laughs) by, by finding the most, the most, uh, clear recordings on uh, YouTube. And, um, um, so we just decided, man, it'd be cool now that we know Dave and he, you know, since he was kind of the guy we had in mind when we were writing the music, like all those other bands, Slayer and, you know, Merciful Fate or, you know, Metallica, whatever, all those bands were, were, we were heavily into, um, we thought, man, this would be the perfect time that we could really kill that record in a, you know, in a good way, um, if we redid it and, um, and it, it kind of snowballed from there. My initial idea was just to re-record it and just put it out and, and be like, you know, surprise. But we ended up doing some shows and it kind of, then we, we got Scott in the mix and it kind of became this new version of the band. And it's been a lot of fun. We've, we've, uh, wanted to do a lot more playing this year, but obviously couldn't. Well, so yeah, we should sort of, there's been some names like Dave Lombardo, famed drummer from Slayer, um, and Scott Ian, amazing songwriter and guitarist from Anthrax. And yeah. if, if you're if you're up to speed or have seen uh, some of the stuff that Mr. Bungles put out with that team together, it's um, it it sort of does speak to my youth. I mean, as you were speaking, Trevor, I was thinking we didn't we don't know each other. We're kind of the same age, and we grew up in very uh-huh. different environments. I'm Canadian for 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 that. Um, uh-huh. But we have these, we wind up having very similar experiences because these albums at the time, like people forget that we revere these bands, Merciful Fate, Slayer, Anthrax. You were not cool if you were listening to this music back in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, in in Eureka, where I grew up, which is actually where I'm 
call where I'm speaking to you from now. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, in, in the eighties, it was, there were all these, uh, you know, cliques, all these different factions of, of fashion and, and, and music essentially that kids were into and, and none of them crossed over, you know, there was the punks and the metalheads right. and the goths and the, the jocks, you know, the, the, the student government people, you know, the popular people, you know, and, and the, I mean, the weird thing was that the, you know, the punks and the metalheads didn't also didn't, you know, there was no crossover there until like kind of towards right around the time I was graduating from high school, you know, and the, some metalheads started getting into bands like DRI and COC and Discharge. And, and you there know, was a bit of hip hop happening on the other side. Like there was crossover happening. I mean, Anthrax did it for sure early, but I remember, yeah. I remember like the soundtrack to that movie Judgment Night and stuff where like, right. you could start feeling like industrial rap, hip hop and punk kind of getting accepted because you're right like i i would listen to even like even if i fringed in back into kiss which i loved in the you know in, yeah. in the later 70s Same. it was frowned upon a little you yeah. Know? yeah 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 totally i actually in um junior high school you know uh so this was right when i started playing bass so it was like 1980 81 um you either liked acdc or kiss right like you had you had to choose and most of my school was into acdc like back in black was the most popular record of the year. You, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it, I can prove that by showing you our yearbook. So <laughs> that was probably 82 ish. Yeah. 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 But I was, uh, I mean, I was really into the record highway to hell. I was also really into kiss, which was my first concert. You know, I liked, I liked all that stuff. And I was listening to bands like heart and cheap trick, you know, and, but, and then in high school, you know, you couldn't, you weren't, you know, so-called allowed to, you know, cross over. And at a certain point we just, you know, me and Mike were in a thrash metal band before Mr. Bungle, but you know, it was all, it was all Metallica and, and Slayer and Anthrax covers. And, um, basically we, me and him started bringing in, you know, punk rock songs we wanted to do and the other guys were not into it. And eventually we, they stopped, you know, inviting us to rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it was a weird, um, we never understood it because we, we were into the, we were into the aggression and the attitude behind all the music and it all made sense. You know, it wasn't just because someone had a Mohawk, you know, I mean, we kind of thought they had a lot of people had a lot of balls to have a Mohawk in our school anyway, cause it was full of redneck metalheads. I, I remember distinctly, um, when I heard uh, I Am The Law by Anthrax and then reading that it had to do with Judge Dredd and me just being like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, I didn't realize music and these people liked comic books too, like I did. Yeah. And, and yeah. then when you would say that to somebody, it was like, you're just going to get slammed into a locker and murdered. Like, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a good look. It, you know? right, right. And now we see it as like this main force of pop culture. It's incredible to to see that transition. I remember, uh, I don't know, probably, geez, it was probably 20 years ago now. I was, I was watching TV or something and it was a, a car commercial came on and it was, it was like a, the, the music was like a thrash metal song. And I, it, it occurred to me as like, wow, I remember when I used to have to really go out and find music right. like this. I'd have to go to record stores or listen to a really specific radio you know, show that was only on once a week, you know, to listen to metal. And now it's, it's totally mainstream. I mean, that just, you know, dates me, but. Well, what I'm, I, what I'm curious about with you is, and again, I, I'm not comparing myself to you, but it just, when I was reading about you in the following and seeing all the projects you're involved with, like I had this deep love of jazz and a lot of it came from when I started playing bass, which it sounds like we started around the same time. I don't play anymore. I, I like to listen to it and speak to bass players, but it's, it's not my uh -huh. thing. Can you talk a bit about where your acceptance into all these different genres happened? Like, did it happen later in life? Were you always like that, even though you were listening to Kiss and Cheap Trick and Metallica? Like, when did it sort of all really come together for you? You mean like acceptance from the just outside? You being, or, or just you being open to hearing. I mean, I remember feeling strange, like loving Jaco Pastorius at the same time where I was really following someone like a Billy Sheehan or listening to Merciful Fate and Slayer. It was all, it, it was very eclectic. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, for me, um, 
it all like I accepted it all right away. You know, I, I grew up, um, in a, I mean, my, my parents weren't necessarily musical, but they, I mean, they definitely delved into music in high school, but they were, they loved music and they were always super supportive. So, uh, my mom has an amazing jazz collection on, you know, vinyl that she, I mean, first edition stuff that she bought when she was in high school, you know, and all kinds of stuff from the fifties and sixties. That's really great. My dad was kind of more into like country music and, and Elvis stuff like that. Um, and so there were always records around and, um, and then when I started playing bass, my first teachers got me into people like Jocko and Stanley Clark. And, you know, that's when I started checking out weather report and, and then, and then I had a great, te- great teacher in high school who was, I think, the first guy to introduce me to Charlie Parker, you know, and I started learning Charlie Parker heads, you know, like Jocko played. And and um, and then, you know, and in the meantime, I was also checking out heavy metal and and also bands like The Police or, um, yeah, me too. you know, you know, so. Which Police album, like for me, it wound up being synchronicity only because of my age, but I did go backwards of- after. Yeah, I think um, Ghost in the Machine is still a really big record for me. And in fact, yeah. I listened to it kind of recently. I love the bass lines on that record. So he's uh, such an underrated bass player to me. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, I think it's because it, it, the role of what he does is so, like, it's in there. It's in the song, you know, so you don't really, doesn't necessarily stand out unless you really pay attention to it. I think it's also his voice and how iconic he is visually that we, it, it's almost like there's too many things for us to remember that he's also the bass player. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, so yeah, I mean, I couldn't, you know, it's not like I went around talking about all that stuff, but I was in, you know, I was in jazz band in high school, you know, and, and, um, I mean, I've met, I've mentioned this a couple times recently. There's, I played in, um, I, my teacher in high school got me, he was the first guy to, um, put an upright bass in my hand and he had this wind ensemble, you know, it was mostly, um, wind and percussion instruments, but they needed a bass instrument or something. So I said, why don't you play, um, upright bass in this band and you can just, all, you know, he just gave me some charts with, you know, with in bass clef. And I was, I don't know what I was playing, maybe the tuba part or something. But, um, I remember we used to play these compositions by this composer, um, uh, Vincent Persichetti, who was an American, uh, 20th century composer who kind of wrote a lot of band music for that was kind of easier to play. So it was a lot of like young bands would play his music. And, um, I remember learning some bass part and I completely stole it. And it's in one of those Mr. Bungle songs on our first demo. You know, it's, it's just like four notes. It's a four note little, you know, riff, but I thought, man, this would be cool for distorted guitar, you know? (laughs) And, uh, so, I mean, I was constantly, just thinking about not, not really worrying about the genre, you know? Um, so I guess for me, it was never really a question. I, you know, I, I knew that, uh, I couldn't, you know, talk to my heavy metal friends about, you know, listening to the police or, you know, Stanley Clark or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, but it didn't matter. I just listened to that at home alone and it was fine, you know? <laughs> so what's the trajectory? I know that you started off on clarinet, you switched to bass at 13. Were you playing electric bass already when you were introduced to the upright or did you, what was the situation? Yeah. Yeah. I played clarinet was my first instrument in, in uh, grammar school. And then my older brother was playing guitar and he got, he's the one who got me into rock music. Um, and then, uh, so I decided I wanted to play bass. Um, and then, and then I played, um, you know, I guess I was playing bass about three or four years before I started playing upright. And then, um, I went to uh, the university here in Humboldt County and I kind of went in, it was pretty naive. I kind of went in thinking I was going to be studying electric bass cause that was my main instrument. I was playing and I wasn't really playing upright. I was playing upright in, in this wind ensemble, but not really that much. Um, I was mostly playing electric bass and I kind of thought I was going to go into university to study electric bass. And they immediately just handed me a bow and some rosin. And I thought, Oh, okay, I guess I'm doing this. And, and, um, I really got into it. So, uh, um, so that was just kind of a happy accident in a way. 
And how do you divide that playing now? Do you think about, I need to play some more electric, I need to play stand-up? Like, how do you... Yeah, they're they're really... I mean, I kind of learned right away that they're really two different instruments. <laughs> um, and, like, you know, just physically, uh, you know, if I don't keep my upright chops in shape, you know, they go down the drain. Um, so I usually when I practice... Uh, uh, which I still do. I practice on upright. I practice with a bow. I practice like, you know, classical technique, you know, scales, really basic stuff, really, or playing through some Bach suite or something. Um, but, uh, I do, if I'm focused on one for a long period, you know, for instance, if I'm on tour, um, playing electric, you know, bass in a band, you know, for a month and a half or something like I start to miss playing the upright and, um, I start to miss just that feel in my hands and, and it goes the other way too. Like if I'm playing a lot of upright, I start to miss the other one. So I, I, I really, I'm fortunate. I can go back and forth, you know, I, cause I, that's what I enjoy doing. A lot I don't like, I don't, I was just going to say, I don't like bringing both to a gig, which <laughs> I, I'm asked to do sometimes like, Hey, can you bring your up? I want you to bring your upright too and play it on one song. Like, Oh man, do you know how much of a pain? Like yeah. now I got to rent a car, you know, <laughs> like just tuning it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. And it's all just like going back in the, in the same, in the one session is weird, you know, um, going back like rapidly, it can be a little bit, uh, disconcerting just for the hands, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, Mike Patton. And again, I guess from a pop culture standpoint, a lot of people clearly know him as the front man for faith no more. And when you dig in, you can sort of see how he's, been, been in a bunch of different projects, Mr. Bungle being the first. Were you like same age, same class, or just in the same high school? Or what, do you remember your first time meeting him, what your thoughts were? Yeah, I don't I don't remember exactly when I met him, but we were the same. We're almost exactly the same age. Our birthdays are actually like two days apart. <laughs> and um, and I met him in junior high school, and he was kind of a he – was, he was sort of a jock. He was hanging out with a basketball uh, jocks and I was hanging out with the Dungeons and Dragons geeks. And, um, we, I don't know, I don't remember how we met each other, but we realized that we were both into rock music and we started trading records. We started bringing records. It was like, Oh man, you got to hear this record. And we bring it to school. And the other guy would take it for a couple days and tape it, you know? And, and, um, I, I, uh, I mentioned, I wrote some liner notes for the new Mr. Bungle record in the, in, a, in the yearbook edition. Um, and I'd mentioned that uh, that the soundtrack to the movie Heavy Metal was kind of important um, because I mean at that age you're that you know that first of all that magazine was kind of really the appealing greatest. yeah the greatest yeah yeah you know and it's like all these scantily clad warrior women you know and I mean it was right up our alley you know and then so it that kind of magazine and and that movie appealed to both like jocks and geeks, you know? <laughs> so, um, and I remember that record had so much great stuff on it. I mean, everything from Devo to, um, I mean, even the Sammy Hagar song, heavy metal was a big one, you know? And, and, um, it's not what it was, you think if you haven't heard it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's definitely pre, uh, Van Hagar <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> era. <laughs> It's even pre uh, "Can't Drive 55." So, but even the even the playlist of that album is not what you think when you visualize that album or think yeah. about what might be on it. It's just not. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I think there. If I remember correctly, there's like Blue Oyster Cult and yep. maybe Black Sabbath. Is there a Black Sabbath song in there? I can't remember. But um, anyway, it's it, it, it's a really it's a pretty eclectic uh, you know collection of rock music. So um, that I I remember us me and Mike being really into that. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were just kind of at the same time. And then, you know, then he and I became pretty inseparable in high school. We kind of decided that we didn't, uh, like anyone else and, <laughs> and we were just going to ride the wave of heavy metal and whatever music that we were into together, you know, and, um, we decided to grow our hair long at the same time. Yeah, let's grow our hair. Okay, cool. So, but it's not, it's one thing when you're in a high school band and you're playing with friends. It's another when you start moving it along, there, a record deal comes up, there's interest. And then we, we can now reflect and, and talk about just how successful that, that pairing was and that group was and still, and still is. So 
I'm always curious when I get a chance to speak to people who've known each other for a long time. Like we had Graham maybe on who had been playing with Joe Jackson since they were in their teens, like oh, literally man. had the record deal and Joe Jackson's walking down the street with him. And after he signs the A&M and says, you know, a lot of these songs are going to be bass driven, like that type of amazing understanding of music. Uh-huh. Are, were you able to look at Mike and be like, this guy is an incredible vocalist. Does he look at you and go, what a songwriter and player, or is it just, it worked out and we're friends. Like, can, can you appreciate the skills that you each have and how, how powerful it became? I think, I think now we can for sure. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was, I, I was playing in this band, um, with, uh, some guys, uh, up here for a while and we decided we didn't really like our singer anymore. And, um, for some reason I was at that point, it was right around the time when I first was hanging out with Mike and I didn't even know if he could sing. I just kind of, uh, I think I heard him sing a line once from a song or something this, that when we were hanging out and, and, uh, I guess it just had, there was a certain charisma there or something that I recognized. I mean, I, you know, at least subconsciously or something. So I just said, Hey, you want to, um, sing in the, our band, you know, and, and, um, and he'd never done that before. So, uh, you know, we got him in the band and, and that, I mean, that's, this was like probably, a, this was a couple of years before we met Trey, before Mr. Bungle formed. So, um, you know, so I had no 80s. idea. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I had, you know, I had no idea what that was going to become. I mean, we were just, you know, friends playing in a band together. So, but I think now, you know, we all, we, we do. Um, and with Trey as well, we like appreciate what, the other guy does for sure, you know? Um, and it almost, I don't know, in a way, it's not like I even think about it that much. Um, but we just like, there was a certain point in, in, I think it was around the time I was writing stuff for Disco Volante, our second record that I, you know, I just decided to write like this 12 tone role. And I, and I didn't even think about it. I'm like, Oh yeah, I can sing this like no problem. Like, you know, it's some <laughs> crazy like melody. I didn't even worry about the range or anything. I just wrote whatever I wanted, you know? So, um, you know, we just kind of accept that, you know, and, and, and when we get together, if we're t- teaching something to e- each other and the other guy says, well, you know, that's, you know, maybe Trey might be, uh, say, uh, oh, it's easier if I play it this way or, you know, we're, we, we kind of, um, help each other orchestrate, you know? What's interesting to me about when I was researching and trying to come up with ideas of what we could talk about, metal is there for sure. But when I would say the bulk of how you are described by others, the two that are more prominent that that what I've seen is one experimental and two being avant-garde. And when I hear those words, I think of art school, I think of pop art. I think of, I guess I go more weird. Like I like really weird stuff. So I can just sort of bucket it into that uh-huh. one way of, of seeing it. When you hear that people describe you as experimental, as avant-garde, is that a check mark for you? Do you self-acknowledge as that? Do you, is that, what, is there a pursuit of weirdness? What is that like for you? I, yeah, I, um, I guess a little bit of all of the above. I mean, I definitely have a memory of sort of uh, wanting to pursue the weird at a younger age, you know, and, and kind of being aware that um, I didn't, I, for instance, when I was in, I think I was like in the sixth grade or something, I remember I decided I didn't want to have a nine to five job. I just made that decision. And I don't even know if I knew what that meant. Like, <laughs> you know, I just thought, I, you know, I want to play, I want to play in a, in stadiums like kiss and, you know, never have a regular job. And I, I mean, of course, a couple of times I did have a regular job, <laughs> right. but you know, I worked in a pizza place, that was my last regular job when I was 18, I guess, before, uh, before I started playing in a bar band. But, um, you know, yes, it, it just, um, I guess searching out the obscure is always, has always been appealing, you know, and, and, um, you know, when I was in college and taking, you know, studying 20th century music and I'd be assigned, uh, you know, some listening, um, you know, assignment to, uh, um, uh, you know, check out this famous, uh, 20th century piece, you know, um, uh, 
um, Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima by Penderecki or something. And I'd go to the library and check it out. And then side B was some other weird, obscure composer that no one ever heard of. And so I'd, I'd tape that as well and listen to that. And then, then I'd want to search out that composer's other pieces, you know. And so um, I guess the the stamp of avant-garde for Mr. Bungle or anything else I do is it feels natural. I don't, I don't, um, really qualify it one way or the other. It's like, you know, um, I mean, I do listen to pop music too. I, there is some, you know, really straightforward, accessible stuff that I like, but, um, but my record collection tends to be, I guess, a little bit more of the obscure or something. And, um, yeah, I don't know, I guess for whatever reason, it's just natural. I like the challenge of it. I like, I like the idea of kind of being confused at first, not knowing what's going on. And, and if I want to know what's going on, then I have to kind of dig into it and, and study it, you know, and that all of that is kind of appealing to me. Um, I mean, I do occasionally put on music for as background, uh, you know, sound, you know, just to kind of have something on to, for my mood, you know, I mean, even sometimes in the morning is, this is super, uh, straightforward but sometimes in the morning i'll put on you know like bach or something which just seems like the perfect morning you know coffee music <laughs> mm-hmm. um to to set your day you know and and uh so i mean i i, I kind of feel like i um treat music a lot of different ways you know i might study it i might put it on for background music i might you know um i don't know it, it's it's very malleable uh to me when it comes to searching that out, do you see the internet as a blessing or a curse? Meaning, obviously, it's the blessing because you can find all this new stuff immediately. It's at hand. You can check it out. Curse meaning it's accessible to everybody through a search. And sometimes the best stuff requires more effort to really make it interesting. Yeah. I, you know, it's. I guess it's both, obviously. And, and um, there are times, I think that for me, the curse part of it is like, you know, uh, you know, there's, I've had, I have like a list in my wallet of stuff that I've been searching out for years. It's, you know, either impossible to find or whatever. And anytime I'm in a record store or bookstore, you know, I pull out that list. I'm like, Oh, maybe I'm going to find it here. And I, I kind of love that search, you know, mm-hmm. but now I, there's been a couple times recently I'm like, Oh yeah, wait, I can just go on the internet and probably, you know, find that and, and have it delivered to my house without moving a muscle, you know? Um, but even st- still with that, there's still, um, there's so much out there, you know, uh, um, I don't know if you know this website, Ubu, it's ubu.com. It's, um, it's all kinds of great obscure, um, videos and audio that, um, a lot of kind of avant-garde stuff that you would, you know, be very difficult to find, but it's, there's a ton, there's a huge list of all kinds of stuff that you can access immediately so it is is the thing that the internet killed which is the hunt i mean yeah i it it is the main reason why i miss record stores that sort of moment in time where it's saturday afternoon and of course we're going to spend six hours wandering the streets going in and out of stores and that's just it's sort of it's the hunt part that 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 breaks me that's gone totally totally i was just uh I mean, it's even worse now with the yeah. quarantine and, you know, but I, I was just telling someone recently, it's like, man, I really, I'm Jones and just go into a record store, you know, and, and browse and get my hands on some dusty vinyl, you know, <laughs> get lost in the stacks. Totally. Like bookstores. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's for sure the, the tough part. <laughs> it's yeah. it's yeah. one of the tough parts of it. I feel like there's still, you know, I mean, I still go into thrift shops and stuff. And, and, you know, usually the first thing I look for is, is that box of records in the corner, you know? And, um, um, I feel like if you, there's still pockets to be able to do that hunt, you know, it's just, I mean, it's harder to do it in a city like New York where I live, but, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, you get out, maybe go down South or, or, uh, you know, out in the middle mid country or something, you might be able to, find some hidden stuff that no, that people have forgotten about, you know? So we're, we're talking about weird and hunting. Can we talk a bit about the, the trio and putting that together and making that music? I, I always struggled with music like that until I watched a couple of Brian Eno 
conversations where he talks about creating ambient music and the whole structure of it not having that sort of verse chorus and it it being these sort of striking moments of of different types of musicality it made me appreciate the fact that i like weirder jazz in particular trios that do weird things uh-huh. more so was that always in your brain as a project that had to happen how did that come together and how do you think about quote unquote structure when you do things like that yeah so you're talking about my trio convulsant yes yeah okay um i that idea kind of came about um when i lived in san francisco and um uh, you know it was i guess probably around the time that like mr bungle was doing disco volante actually maybe even a little bit before that and i um had done some playing with Miles Boyson and Kenny Wallison and, and Miles is a guy who was known for, he played in the Clubfoot Orchestra and the Splatter Trio and, um, you know, some weird bands in, in San Francisco. Um, and he, he got to, he put together this recording session with me and this drummer, Kenny Wallison. And, you know, it was kind of a mix of rock and jazz and weirdness. And I think, I think, somewhere out of that I thought man I've never really had my own trio before I've never really led a band before and I wanted to do something on with upright bass uh, that kind of explored um well I wanted to do something that was that was sort of jazz based with power chords you know that was a little bit more aggressive than most of the jazz I was hearing but was also a little bit more harmonically um progressive than like most rock stuff um, you know, not just, I wanted some counterpoint and composition and some, you know, not just the bass and guitar playing in unison the whole time, you know? And, uh, so then, yeah, I put together a trio with, with Kenny and, and this guitar player, Adam Levy, and, um, just sat down and wrote a bunch of music. And, um, that was the first thing I ever did under my own name, actually. So, and then when I got to New York, I, you know, uh, that particular trio we only performed once and then you know we kind of went our separate ways and um i just decided to kind of reconfigure the band when i got to new york and um that's you know right around the time i met i'd known chess before i'd known him from the bay area but i met mary halverson in in uh in new york and um so a very yeah, guitar player yeah yeah and um i mean the first time i played with her in another trio with a with a drummer this drummer mike pride in new york and as soon as i played with that i thought oh man i gotta play more with her (laughs) you know like she's she's kind of in harmonically in this zone that i like and and also does it in her own weird way so um but uh of course now she's like super famous and popular and and hard to pin down for any scheduling (laughs) (laughs) do you think about recording more of the trio do you do you write in what is writing for you now is it how, how do you how do you do it well i'm actually uh funny you ask i'm actually writing a whole new book of music for that trio um with a chamber quartet so oh, wow. i'm kind of i'm kind of refiguring it again um and uh i actually um uh, got a grant a few years ago for this to do that and i just haven't I haven't really pinned it down yet what exactly it is, but I'm, I'm starting to get there. I'm starting to, uh, like find its voice. It's been a weird kind of beast of a project for me, like just creativity, cre- creatively, you know, um, chamber but, music yeah. equals cello for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's going to be cello, viola, um, flute and bass clarinet plus trio convulsant. <laughs> so, and, um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be weird. <laughs> Good. That's why, that's why we're talking. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I guess writing for me is, you know, I have to, I have to block the time to do it. It's hard. It's easy for me to get, to get distracted doing other things. And, um, so I really have to like book myself like, okay, I'm going to like for the next four weeks, I'm just going to sit down and, and, you know, work on this music. And actually that's what I'm intend to do for the month of, uh, uh, of November. So now that this bungle stuff is kind of behind me and for the moment, um, I have some time for the rest of the year and of course, obviously no other gigs. Right. So I, I can, I think I can stay at home and, and, um, really dig into it. 
you seem very routine based. And I noticed in reading a couple articles that you actually bring it up and you're bringing it up again now, especially during these crazy pandemic lockdowns. Uh-huh. Is, is your routine and schedule really important to you? Do you like flying by the seat of your pants? How do you operate best? Oh man, that's a good question. I, um, I think, I mean, I am routine based just like, just personally, you know, in my, per- like I, you know, I get up and kind of have the same thing for breakfast every day, you know, and I have a pattern that I kind of like to, you know, I make lists, you know, I'm like, I have to do this and this and this today. And, and, um, I mean, that's the only way. Otherwise I get, like I said, I get distracted. I mean, I, even with all that, I still get distracted. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm constantly going off on some tangent that I shouldn't, you know, I don't know. I guess I have, sometimes I have a hard time focusing. So, um, uh, you know, instead of thinking about taking Adderall or something, I just, I just make Make lists. lists. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, the memento technique. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I have to, um, yeah, like I say, I have to, um, kind of book myself. I have to, you know, um, which I, it's been difficult for me to do this year for various reasons, you know, um, the lockdown being one of them, but you know, you, which you'd think it'd be the opposite. And I feel like a lot of people have had this experience where they think like, Oh, I've got all this time. I can get all this done. And then you kind of get up in the morning. You're like, ah, what's the point? You know, or your brain is like chocolate pudding. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then next thing, you know, you know, gone through a bottle of wine and you haven't got anything done, you know, it's like me and a couple, you know, me and a couple friends in New York were like, well, it's three o'clock. I guess it's time to start drinking, you know, day drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I have to self discipline is, is difficult. And it's something that, you know, as a, as a self-employed musician, freelance, you know, who like I'm my own boss, essentially, like I, I'm the one who decides what gigs I'm going to do and, and you know, how much I'm going to accept to get paid and all that kind of stuff. Like I have to do that all myself. So, um, as well as keep track of my schedule. And, and so, and, it, and I mean, I like that. I like the variable of it. I, you know, like I was saying before, I don't want to get up every day and have a nine to five job and, you know, answer to someone. And, um, so I like, but at the same time, it's difficult. It's, this self-discipline is, is a, it's a hard, um, muscle to flex. And I'm still, after all these years, I'm still, you know, have to deal with it. Did I also read somewhere that you teach? I teach occasionally. Yeah. I give, um, private lessons, but I don't really pursue it. I kind of, every once in a while, someone will come to me and, um, was that electric and or upright or both or it's both. Yeah. It depends. Um, yeah. Some students are both, some students are, and I've had, uh, uh sometimes I, I, um, I'm on the roster at a new school in New York. Sure, great So, school. um, I, some students actually get a hold of me through that and, and they get credit and I get actually get a, a good fee for it, you know? So, um, I don't, yeah, I don't teach that much, but I, but I will, you know, if I have time. How do you see yourself as a teacher? What kind of teacher are you, Trevor? I'm not as uh, I'm not really a disciplinary. I'm not as good a teacher as some of the teachers I had. <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> you'd think that would have rubbed off, but uh, you know, I kind of let people, you know, do their thing. Um, you know, if someone comes to me and says, you know, hey, I got what do you think of this riff and their and their technique is super weird or something. I mean, I I I do go back and really try to, um, give people basics, you know, the, the basics that I learned and, and, um, you know, technique wise and, and theory and that kind of stuff. But, um, if they have a unique quality to their plane or something, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily try to squelch that, you know, um, if it's working for them, then I think it's something that should be embraced because it's maybe the thing that's going to make them unique. On your website, I noticed this dead bass goon thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, can you explain? <laughs> well, that's a that's a um, bass line that um, is in the song "Dead Goon" by Mr. Bungle, which is on our first record. And um, actually, I didn't write it; our drummer Danny wrote it. Wrote the bass and, part, yeah, uh, yeah, he wrote the bass part, and it's 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 really it's a funny bass line because it's essentially he wrote it on piano with two fingers. Um, and th- they're basically like each finger's at 
is an, an octave, they're an octave apart, and then the top one descends and the bottom one ascends, <laughs> and um, chromatically, and um, which is obviously really easy to do on piano, but on bass, it's pretty tricky. <laughs> and um, that, for some reason, I'm, you know, I had no idea this was going to happen, but that line, that bass line became like, I'm constantly asked about it. Um, how do you play that? You know, and and um, so that's why I I finally put it up on my website. I'm like, here's how to play it. Stop asking me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my favorite part. Is the end of it is, and we will never talk about this yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which is you know I'm being you know you uh, sarcastic <laughs> there, but um, but yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how many people have latched on that, and I you know I have to tell them I didn't even write it. You know, a bass player would never write that. <laughs> no, it's just though. But that's what made a lot of the things that came out of Mr. Bungle so amazing. Totally, totally, and I I think actually that's a really uh, um um, valuable technique is to write things on instruments that they're, that you're not writing of, you know, um, write on different instruments than what you're writing for. For instance, writing a bass line on piano or writing a, you know, writing a vocal melody on bass or something, you know, um, it, it takes you out of the, your, your kind of muscle memory habits, um, and, and, you know, kind of forces you to really use your ear more, I think. And I, but, think that's really important and conversely I, I mean one of the things i love on youtube is like the other day i watched somebody play a cover of take on me by aha uh-huh on their uh-huh. bass but they were playing the melody they weren't playing the bass line uh-huh. and it's amazing how your brain opens up when you hear an instrument playing a piece that wasn't played on that instrument before like you're it is really inspiring yeah 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 it's true i mean um yeah, orchestration is is kind of an underrated thing, and I mean that's one, some of the some of my favorite you know pop stuff, for instance. Like, I mean, I guess pop is a is kind of a vague word, but you know, someone like Fiona Apple, who I love, is you know she does all kinds of really interesting things with orchestration that you wouldn't expect, you know. And um, and the older she gets, the more interesting it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her new record's totally amazing. <laughs> that was an insane. I mean, that album got a lot of critical acclaim, so it, it can't be one of those. Uh, and a lot of people didn't hear about it. It got it got a lot of attention, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was well deserved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So cool. Um, the last area I'm curious about is John Zorn, uh, where you met him, how you see that relationship. It's a big part of your discography and who you are. Yeah, um, Mr. Bungle, that, that was a band that, uh, well, uh, Naked City in particular was a band that Mr. Bungle kind of, me and Trey and Mike sort of lashed onto as soon as we heard it. And I had kind of been hearing about these, the kind of, you know, New York downtown scene um, when I lived up here in Eureka when I was a kid and, and I discovered Tim Byrne and, um, you know, people like Mark Dresser and Joey Barron, um, who played a lot with Zorn back in the day. And, um, uh, so I knew their names and then, I don't know, we, we, I remember we were shopping me and I think me and Mike and Trey were shopping in, um, Santa Rosa at this place called the last record store where we used to stop a lot on the way down to San Francisco. Um, on our way down to San Francisco to buy records, we'd stop at the last record store in Santa Rosa. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we it's discovered a great that name first. for a store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's still there actually, but it I think would be it the might. last one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, we discovered that Zorn rec, the, you know, the naked city record and loved it. And then when we got our record deal with Warner brothers and we had a budget, we decided to, ha- you know, find a producer, to help us make the record. And we went through a couple people that were either too expensive or unavailable. And then, and then I think that was right around the time we discovered naked city with like, why don't we ask this guy Zorn? And we, none of us knew him at all. And, um, I think Danny and Trey maybe went and saw some project of Zorn's in San Francisco and, 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 uh, took him a tape. Um, and and asked you know we had a meeting with we set up a meeting with him and and we asked him to produce the record and at first he said no he's like you don't you guys don't want me i'm totally not commercial because he knew we were making a record for warner brothers and we were like man we aren't that's you need to hear the music <laughs> yeah yeah and that's we're not interested in being commercial we want like we just felt like he would understand us you know um and he was great he ended up 
we actually recorded the whole record before he came in and then he, and then he helped us mix it and he came in and changed a few things, not, not in the compositions, but like he kind of helped us orchestrate things a little better. And he actually put the, pulled the reins on us cause we were constantly trying to fill up every single track with as much crap as we could. And, you know, he kind of pulled us back a few times, um, and let the music, you know, do its job, I think. And, and also kind of let us, uh, be ourselves, you know, he didn't, if we sort of disagreed with him in the studio, he would, he would be like, okay, cool. That's what you guys want. You know? Um, so then immediately after that, he started hiring us for his, his stuff. You know, he asked Trey and Mike to play on that record elegy. And then immediately I, you know, I started playing in a West coast version of Masada. And, um, I guess once he realized that we could play and we were open-minded, he, you know, that that's the thing that's great about him. He's constantly, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if on the search for, but at least uh, totally aware of, you know, the next generation of musicians and people who have, have a lot of energy and are, are open to play different kinds of stuff. And, um, I mean, he's constantly, if he, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious if you look at his roster of musicians, there's always like some young, young guys in there, you know, yeah. with, with the old school cats as well. <laughs> Stanley Clark does a lot of that now. He has a lot of young kids playing in his band and stuff. It's really interesting. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So great. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, Trevor. It was like uh, this weird trip down memory lane for me as well. Uh, cool. The new album is called The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny Demo, because this is a <laughs> right. 21 years plus in the making. Well, no, I guess it's even longer than that. It's probably... It's like 35, actually. <laughs> 35 years yeah, yeah. in the making. Yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry to make it to you. <laughs> no. And, and you know what? Listen, there's there's no better time to listen to music that heavy and awesome than right now. It really does help. It's great. Cool. That's good. That's good to hear. So thank you so much for your time. Let people know where they can best connect to you. I know you're doing stuff online. Let people know where they can find you. Yeah. I mean, I have uh, my website, trevordun.net, um, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Donatov, D-U-N-N-A-T-O-V is my handle on both of those. So, um, yeah, that's basically how I can be reached or, you know, um, researched. <laughs> that's great, man. Thank you so much for your time. You bet, Mitch. Mm-hmm.